When you start to take all that into consideration, you realize indeed, you know, every kindergarten classroom is going to see some 30% of it already affected by the time you're in middle school. Uh, you're seeing, you know, 40 to 50% of that, that child population dealing with a chronic disorder. And what it's really showing is that these children are now being raised in the, on a planet that is not inhabitable to life in the same way that it was just a few decades in the past and had been for hundreds of thousands of years of human history. This is your host, Doc Schrock, and this is Life Alive. Let's dip into the how and why healing stories can transform lives, including your own at a time in history when it matters most. It doesn't matter how you started in life, it matters how you restart today. It's that time to reawaken your hope, purpose, and passion to heal, grow, and find your flow into a life that has meaning. Let's go. Welcome, everybody. I am Dr. Ryan Schrock, and I am our moderator today. This is a special broadcast of Life Alive podcast. This is my wife, Dr. Andrea Schrock, and she will be on the panel today. The goal of today's webinar is very simple. It's to highlight the simplicity of adopting organic and regenerative practices in your community and to give you solutions to follow through with it. I know that Kim Conti, the founder of Non-Toxic Neighborhoods, is on the call with us today, and she uh, emphasized yesterday that um, following through is the key in taking some actions. So um, we took some action in our community, and we have our mayor as well, and Dr. Zach Bush on the call, and uh, I'm going to get right into it since we are running right on time with the uh, bios of our panelists today. Kim Conti is the founder of Non-Toxic Neighborhoods, an organization who inspires global participation, one community at a time, for future generations. Today, NTN has partnered with over 65 cities, counties, school districts, and universities across the country. To enormous success, their approach is to educate communities and policy influencers about the importance of soil health and protecting our children, landscape managers, and food supply from outdated and harmful chemical and herbicide practices. If it were not for her stepping in just as a concerned mom at first and following her instinct to protect her children, we wouldn't have this wonderful organization. Um, we wouldn't have the solutions that we we're gonna go lay out for you today. And since the COVID pandemic, Eve, they've also been even busier, spanning from Pennsylvania all the way to um, Louisville, Colorado, where, where we're tuning into from today. Um, so welcome Kim and I want to read your guys' mission statement. It is to protect the health of every child from harmful pesticides where they play and learn by providing organic and regenerative landscaping management solutions. We also have our Louisville, Colorado mayor today, Ashley Stolzman. First, I just want to say this wasn't in her official bio, but you are just an awesome human being. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Um, she has a degree in background in chemical engineering and has served on the Louisville City Council since 2013. During her service in Louisville, the city has successfully transitioned to 100% renewable electricity for all city facilities, acquired and permanently protected 95 acres of land for parks and open spaces, and most recently ended the use of glyphosate in 24D in parks and open spaces citywide. She's here to share her experiences uh, of our community's policy influencer. 
And then one of my favorite introductions, today we have Dr. Andrea Schrock. She's a corporate ladder climber turned chiropractor. <laughs> She's got an awesome story. And if you want more about it, go to our first episode of the Life Alive podcast. You'll love it. She is on a mission to share truth, transparency, health, and healing with the world. She has a passion for helping people process emotional stress and leading them and rising to their full potential. She's the co-owner of Life Alive Chiropractic here in Louisville, Colorado, where the mission is in the name to help people live fully alive. She's also my wife, so I'm biased to this panelist. Had it not been for her spearheading all the communication and connection between our mayor, uh, Ashley Stolzman and Kim Conti, we would not be seeing here today. So thank you so much, my love. <laughs> and then last but not least, he's going to start us off today, uh, Dr. Zach Bush, medical doctor. Dr. Zach, um, first of all, just welcome home to the Boulder area where, where you grew up. Um, you, he's a renowned multidisciplinary physician of internal medicine, endocrinology, hospice care, and internationally recognized educator on the microbiome as it relates to human health, soil health, food systems, and a regenerative future. Dr. Zach founded Seraphic Group and the nonprofit Farmer's Footprint to develop root cause solutions for human and ecological health. He likes to look three-dimensionally at complex problems and find simple solutions. He also serves as an advisor to Kim on Non-Toxic Neighborhoods Science Board. So welcome everybody. On behalf of Life Alive Podcast, um, it is our sincere desire that this webinar light a flame of hope and empowerment through each person listening on this podcast and also on the panel. You know, we need as, just as much inspiration when we're out there on the front lines as policy influencers and people in the lab doing the research. Uh, we started this with the belief that cities throughout the world can unite in this time in ridding our communities of these harmful uh, chemicals that adversely impact human health. So today, I want to start with Dr. Zach. Um, first of all, I want to say, again, welcome home. Uh, this is probably where this is all where it began for you. I'm sure in the fond memories of childhood, whizzing through the foothills and uh, becoming a Lego maniac and such are going through your consciousness right now. So welcome home. How's it feel? Uh, so good to be with all of you. I'm so grateful for your collective efforts there in the Boulder Valley and the greater area there of Louisville, and there's just uh, such a, a vortex of energy that's always existed in that space and has led to much of the thought leadership that's come out of there, and you guys are showing the continued efforts there, and I'm just uh, very grateful to your effort to reach out to Kim, and thank you, Kim, for inspiring the world to clean up these neighborhoods and clean up our parks and rag for children, our schoolyards, and the rest. You know, to give a, a quick overview of, of how we all came to be here is really around the realization that human health is at, at a, a extraordinary state of collapse. And, and we have uh, never seen the speed at which children in particular have been affected by chronic disease. In the 1960s, we saw 1.2% of children in the United States with a chronic disorder or disease. In recent uh, Medicare screenings and Medicaid screenings, we're seeing 52% of children with a chronic disorder or disease by the time they're 16. So from 1.2 to 52% uh, 
is an extraordinary climb. And unfortunately, that's not any more limited to the United States. Recent screening in Germany demonstrated the exact same 54% in Germany with children with a chronic disorder or disease. And I know it's very hard to imagine if you're a parent, is that really true? One in two children have a chronic disorder or disease? Is that possible? But then just run through your head of uh, which children do you know that don't have a food sensitivity, an environmental allergy, a severe food allergy, eczema, psoriasis, uh, mood disorder, sleep disorder, precocious puberty, obesity, metabolic disorder, autoimmune conditions, and the rest. And you start to realize, yes, this is uh, actually part and parcel uh, to your peer group of your children, as well as perhaps within your own families. And we haven't even mentioned autism and attention deficit disorders in the mix, which, of course, are leading the charge on so many of these fronts. And so when you start to take all that into consideration, you realize, indeed, you know, every kindergarten classroom is going to see some 30% of it already affected by the time you're in middle school. Uh, you're seeing, you know, 40 to 50% of that, that child population dealing with a chronic disorder. And what it's really showing is that these children are now being raised in the on a planet that is not inhabitable to life in the same way that it was just a few decades in the past and had been for hundreds of thousands of years of human history. And so we are at this pinnacle, not just of human health, but actually the collapse of biology on the planet in its support to complex life like humans or mammals and the like. And for this, we know that the conditions of humans and our decline in our health, our decline in our fertility, now 50 52% of decline in sperm counts in males over the last 40 years in the United States and other Western countries. And so, uh, you know, this cataclysmic drop in fertility and health is, is part and parcel in parallel with the collapse of biology on Earth. We've lost 40 to 50% of life on Earth over the last 40 years. We're almost halfway through the sixth great extinction on Earth, and we're speeding towards the completion of that extinction over the next 80 to 100 years unless this becomes the new normal, unless this pattern of behavior that we're seeing in uh, Mayor Ashley's work and, you know, Kim's work as well as inspired, you know, boots on the ground efforts from uh, Dodgers Andrea and Ryan here. It's just a really in inspiring opportunity to see that we can literally shift this, this inevitable future to a future that we would all want for our children. And uh, there's no chemical that is leading the charge better than glyphosate in the demise of that biology on Earth. We currently spread over 4 billion pounds of that chemical through water systems, soil systems of the world, it functioning as a potent antibiotic and chelator of critical nutrients. And it blocks the enzyme pathway that allows us to build the essential amino acid reservoir within our bodies. Uh, those essential amino acids, uh, nine of just the 22 amino acids that, that have to build over 280,000 different proteins to build a healthy human body. Uh, those 22 amino acids can be produced in our body except for those essential amino acids, which have to be gotten from our food or microbiome of our gut and soil systems. And it's in that work of glyphosate that we see that undermining of gut and soil fertility, as well as nutrient availability, amino acid production, where we start to misspell life. When you start to lose the essential amino acids, the building of those 280,000 proteins starts to literally become a, a process of misspelling. A protein is a long string of amino acids that are stripped together in a very specific fashion that allows it to then fold into a very complex three-dimensional structure with specific functionality related to that 3D structure. When you misspell it, if you're missing phenylalanine or tyrosine because there's glyphosate in the water that grew your plants, 
you start to, to misspell that protein. And instead of phenylalanine, you might replace it with an alanine or something like that. And with that misspelling, you get a different folding of the, the protein. And so now the enzyme that would have been functional detox pathway for that child is now dysfunctional. Now imagine the womb of every woman in the United States being laced with this glyphosate compound, blocking the ability of the environment to provide critical minerals chelated by the glyphosate, critical amino acids, and therefore misspelling the proteins within the, this child as an embryo. And we've shown this in the EPA now. Uh, we've shown this to the EPA, shown it through many scientific studies around the world that there is a generational effect to the epigenetic injury of Roundup or, or glyphosate. That chemical in the first generation actually shows no damage in the mice studies. And, and so the mouse will live a normal lifespan, show no chronic disease uh, development, and then will have normal litters. However, this, that litter that is born will start to show, even without continued demonstration or, or exposure to the chemical, will start to show the metabolic problems, obesity, uh, all the way down to autoimmune disease and the like, the third generation gets really frightening. That's where you see stillbirths, you see a ton of uh, miscarriages, you see a ton of, a ton of uh, birth defects and early cancers. The frightening thing that we have to face as a society now is that we've only seen this, the second generation of Roundup kids. Over the next 10 years, we'll start to see the third generation of Roundup children being born into the world. And we fear that we have only seen the beginning of what will be one of the most catastrophic, you know, epidemics of chronic disease ever known. And our children will be in the crosshairs of that. And so that is the crisis that we face. And the new future is laid out by these people who are working right here in Louisville, Colorado, to make this difference on the ground here. And so it's uh, a great joy to imagine a future that does not include the poisoning of future generations and, and a future that includes a regenerative environment that begins in the soil systems as we replace those with the non-toxic variants that Kim has so talentedly put together a toolkit for those city park managers, the groundskeepers and the rest to have a, an organic uh, uh, toolbox in front of them to make this thing happen. So that's a big overview from my perspective and how I got involved with Kim and uh, how it comes to great excitement to be on with you all today. It's the template of this. It's the, the process of this uh, that is so exciting. And so I can't wait to hear from you, Mayor and Kim, as to the process you guys have put into place as Andreas spurred you all on to action. And, uh, I, you know, the excitement that I have is it's not complicated. And it doesn't take that long to really reverse this. So, Kim, uh, if you want to jump in there and, and uh, fill in kind of how you come to come in parallel with this process uh, and how you saw it from your angle as a mother. Sure. So thank you, Zach. Um, don't drink straight tequila yet. <laughs> it's pretty depressing. Um, the, you know, the good news is that, you know, when we started this process, um, you know, at the time I was lucky enough not to care about something so much where I felt the need to reach out to elected officials to see what, what we can do to fix this. Um, so our goal is just to make it as simple as possible and provide everything from the alternatives that work that are fiscally sound to what to avoid because they don't work as well as process documents and anything that city or county staff could utilize to make the transition away from these ecocides. Um, so I, I think it's really cool how this happens so quickly. I think 
to date, uh, Brentwood is still the fast, um, the fastest transition where we just submitted a pesticide use report. Um, but with this, you know, you have a, a mayor that really understands the importance of protecting her community and the environment and the benefits that delivers to the community. And you have really passionate residents that understand, you know, why they wanted this change in their city. So I think, Ryan, if you share the, the, the path, I'll come back in at the end and provide all the simple steps. But I think it's, it's great to hear your point of view and how this all started and the, what you just shared with your wife. And she just took it from there. And uh, just as a, a point to go back to Zach's point is that they're actually finding these chemicals. And I know that even your advisory board, um, Dr. Bruce had talked about um, them finding chemicals, uh, 180 of 287 that they find in the umbilical cord. And us, we don't have children yet, but just us thinking about um, being new parents and having kids and, and settling down in the community, we started to think a lot about the things that you just breeze by every day and, and things that you normally wouldn't think about. We were like, you know, what is being sprayed out there in the field and, and what kind of environment do we want our kids to grow up in? So um, I just want to start with Dr. Andrea and ask you just as you're a concerned citizen and a wellness practitioner, um, what's your driving force behind protecting um this community and also just like what drove you to want to meet with the mayor? <clears throat> um, so on the surface, it might seem that just because I'm a chiropractor, I, you know, that's, that's why, I mean, yes, my life is very, um, uh, focused on health in so many ways, but I wasn't always, um, following this path. And when Ryan was actually reading my bio, Kim laughed, and I'm pretty sure that she laughed because I actually was in corporate America and I worked for big food for seven years. And I was, um, you know, just living my life like most people and not really, I really wasn't thinking about uh, all the things that we just talked about in the last few minutes. And I actually came face to face with a really serious uh, illness where my GI tract shut down completely and I actually couldn't go to the bathroom for six months. And at that point in my life, I'm not going to go through the whole story because we don't have time, but I, at that point I realized that something was causing this and I was bound and determined to get to the cause and I wasn't going to resort to drugs and surgery because I knew that that wasn't going to fix the issue. And I encountered chiropractic at that time and it totally reversed what was going on with me. But in that, I also started to learn about all the things that are actually causing those interferences in my body that chiropractic helped me to reverse. Um, and I just became really, first of all, when I, when I first learned the principles of healing, I just was so dumbfounded that I never knew this before. And the, the driving force within me was just, why, why doesn't everybody know about this? Everybody deserves to know this. And so that's really fueled me in becoming a chiropractor. And then in all of this, I mean, I feel like everything that I've learned along this path about what I put in my body, what I put on my body, uh, you know, all, all these pesticides and everything, Everybody deserves to know what I just learned that I was completely unaware of for the first approximately 30 years of my life. And so 
as far as coming here, I mean, I think about everybody, of course, I think about the kids, but I think about every single person in the community deserving to breathe air that isn't polluted with toxic chemicals and drink water and, and, you know, eat food that's clean. Even if you grow organic food, it's still laced with these toxins because it's water soluble and it's everywhere. So, you know, what happened was Ryan was actually watching a town hall with Zach at the end of April and they started talking about non-toxic neighborhoods. We've been following Zach since like 2016, but I didn't know anything about it yet. And so we just looked up the organization online and I had actually met the mayor at the chamber Christmas party and she gave me her card and she goes, here's my cell phone number. If you ever need anything, call me. And so I thought, Oh, I have her card. I'm going to just call her, you know, cause I just figured that was the most logical next step. And she was so awesome. She jumped on board right away and we set up a zoom. And the next thing you know, we're on the phone with Kim and the mayor and the park and rec director. And a few days later they made this all happen. And so um, yeah, I think for me, my driving force is simply just that everybody deserves to know this. And, and it just was so great because everything was just so easy and really flawlessly executed by, by our city staff and the help with Kim. I, I think that if I didn't, if I didn't have that resource, I would have felt somewhat paralyzed because I wouldn't have known what, uh, substitutes to use and things like that. That's not something that I was really privy to at that point in time. And so non-toxic neighborhoods has just been amazing. And like she said, I, uh, I'm just a lifelong learner and that's what you commit to when you commit to being a doctor of anything is that you commit to showing up and learning from your patients and learning things outside on your own time to one, make sure that you show up as the best practitioner and the best person that you can be and elevate yourself. You can't elevate anybody. They can't take that next step if you're not a little bit ahead of them. And so uh, I guess my driving for is a mantra that goes through my head a lot in this is, um, you know, seeing people, you know, out there right now with this pandemic going on, um, our practice was actually shut down uh, for a week in Colorado and um, I wasn't able to love and serve how I normally do because it's, it's a hands-on um, hands uh, practice. So I was trying to figure out, you know, how can I see people? How can I love them? How can I serve them? And I, like Dr. Andrea said, I've been following Zach and his work and reading his papers and I think what it came down to for me is that when I envision a future, I want uh, health safety. I want every child to be educated about this and I want their parents to know about it because what Zach said earlier was that we haven't even seen what health impacts the third generation is um, this, this glyphosate chemical and some of these herbicides are going to have on our children. And for me, I know that our children are going to show up and be the ones to see this through if it's going to happen. So I, that that's my driving force. And then of course, learning about organic and regenerative solutions that uh, one are available, like have one conversation with Kim and, you know, read, read the email that she sent mayor at uh, mayor Stolzman. And it's like, Oh, there actually are things that we can do and people that she can put you in contact with, and it's completely doable. I did a, a health presentation just this morning and convinced 12 people 
um, if they weren't already using different alternatives such as you know like vinegar and salt and on their driveways and such to one be mindful of their neighbors that have kids playing in the yard next to them or have aviaries across the street and so uh, I you know just took a 40 minutes of my time to present that today and so that's really my driving force is the education behind this and just it really can be that simple if anyone's out there listening request a meeting with your mayor and you may uh, be amazed at how simple that can be to sit down and talk with someone, especially on zoom right now. So my next, uh, I want to move on to our policy influencer, uh, Mayor Stolzman. Um, I want to know, I know that a lot of how this fell into place was timing. Can you give us a little background on some of the sustainability initiatives you've already been working on here in Louisville? And then the second part of that question is, what was the tipping point for you to adopt um, an organic regenerative land management approach? Thank you so much. Yeah. So, um, you know, being the mayor, I'm a public servant and I really serve the community and work for the community. And we all do in our local government here. So it's awesome to have people like Dr. Andrea reach out and, and give you good ideas. Um, so then we can put those things into place. Um, just backing up on a little bit of the history, we have a sustainability plan here in Louisville that we're actually in the process of updating this year. And we're trying to do all kinds of things to make sure that the health and safety of the public are first and foremost. So um, the sustainability community um, here in Louisville, Colorado, has asked us to work on plastics. So like, for example, they found um, microplastics in our water sources, which come from glaciers. And so people are very concerned about the long-term impacts of uh, microplastics in their systems. So we are putting forward uh, plastic bag tax for the voters to consider this fall so that um, you know we could reduce, we, we use 4.5 million plastic bags approximately just here in our little town. And so if we have a fee on that, uh, people could avoid the tax by, by bringing their own bag and not contributing to that. Um, we're doing other things like we're trying to re reduce our carbon emissions dramatically by switching our electricity sources over to renewable sources instead of fossil fuel producing sources. So when Dr. Andrea contacted me and said, you know, hey, you're spraying these poisons all over our areas where kids are playing and over agricultural crops growing in them, um, you know, why, why don't we do something different? And we had actually begun the process, um, we stopped spraying the areas where the actual play structures were last year. And so um, her request was like, yeah, you know what, this is the natural extension. We, this, the air moves around, these chemicals move around in the water. It doesn't make sense to just not spray the swing set. We really need to take the next step. And having Kim's organization, um, having Andrea match us up was just awesome because our um, staff members were concerned about all of the reasons not to do it. So they're concerned about, you know, when people go to the dog park and um, their dog steps on a, a puncture vine. Um, you know, they then they say, well, we, we've got to spray that puncture vine. But with Kim's help, they've given us solutions in addition to mechanical control where we can use organic non-synthetic alternatives to address some of the weeds that we do need to take out that are either invasive or, or cause harm. So it's awesome that her organization had all of that information available. And just to have community members like Andrea and Ryan that'll, that'll match people up and give you the good ideas, um, all you have to do is listen. So you can do it in your town too. Where are you guys at in the process right now? 
Yeah, so we're, um, Kim has, has hooked our park staff up with some alternatives. So they're testing different alternatives in different areas to see what works. Uh, we did a community weed poll where people volunteered uh, to mechanically remove weeds. And um, it's, there's a worldwide pandemic right now. So it was hard to organize because usually our community events involve everybody coming together and being in the same place. And we had to make sure there was good masking and social distancing. Um, but even with that, we were able to get a good turnout and have people spaced apart um, doing the weed poll. And there's just been a, a tremendous amount of community support for doing this. So, um, like I say, the staff are still are evaluating the different um, chemicals and alternatives that Kim has sent over to make sure that they're using the, the least amount they possibly can and using alternatives like goats and mowing and, and um, healthy turf in the first place to avoid chemical use. Um, so we're really in the pilot phase of testing these things uh, and integrating it into our, our normal operations and all of our operating procedures. Sure. And to a uh, question to Kim, to switch over to Kim, I know that uh, there are you've worked with some uh, landscapers and greenskeepers on golf courses. Uh, do you have any suggestions on how to move forward with spaces like that or maybe private land as well? Um, yes. So the city of Carlsbad, um, we worked with them to adopt an organic and regenerative management policy. And they didn't just include all city space, city parks, open space. They also included their municipal course. So um, they've had great success in transitioning. We focused on, you know, attacking the greens last. And we knew that we needed to create a policy specific for golf courses because, you know, different protocols are needed based on expectations of the turf. Right. So a golf course organic regenerative management policy is very different than a park and very different than open space. So what we do is we um, trial literally everything from, you know, OMRI listed Washington State Department of Ag certified pesticides because there's so much greenwashing out there right now. Um, to goats, to solar-powered weeding robots. You know, that's more for, you know, open space and parks. So our goal is just to share the really heavy bad news that Zach is so good at doing. <laughs> you know? So we go in and, and, and share why this is important, you know, to the globe, to the planet. Um, and then the supporting research to back that up because, you know, the pesticide industry will, of course, tell you how dangerous vinegar is and you know they don't really want people to learn the benefits that happen when you focus on soil health and regenerative practices you know because it helps free you from this pesticide chemical hamster wheel that truly only benefits industry it's not benefiting our farmers our land managers our soil our air our water so it's basically just just moving back to more of a natural system and, you know, it, it's fun now trialing different products and techniques and it's, it's the information sharing. So now we, um, we have golf course superintendents, land managers, uh, Rutgers University has a, a brilliant, even though they're a land grant university, they have a, a beautiful organic uh, program there, um, Rain County Parks. So we just simply, you know, when we find something else that's more effective and fiscally sound 
we put it into the mix and we, you know, we share that. We work with the manufacturer to make sure it's registered in different states so everybody has access to it. Because um, again, it's, it's just simple. You know, I think industry is very powerful and they have so much money, right? So they're great at, at basically misinforming people that are writing the purchase orders because they might not have the organic portfolio that would benefit them. But the nice thing now is, um, you know, site one and um, target who really just only sold the poisons since the demand has increased and since, since people are just more aware of the negative impacts, um, especially with COVID-19. I mean, we really have never been this busy because I think people really understand the importance of, you know, our outdoor space and public parks and, and that we need them to be free of these endocrine disruptors and, chemicals that are directly linked to having, you know, additional, you know, negative outcomes to COVID. Um, and it's, it's just getting the information out. We have no loyalty to the, you know, the pesticides we recommend just in the past three months, you know, we have two new non-selective organic controls that are working better than the other ones. So, um, you know, we know we're basically their free business department because we're sharing, you know, what's working the best at that time. Um, but it's critical to keep this fiscally sound. And when we started this in 2016, you know, we didn't have the alternatives. I mean, we, we in Irvine, California, went organic by neglect because for us it was more, you know, we want to protect our kids, but we didn't have the alternatives and the solutions. Um, we didn't have you know, even the research that's come out from all of this litigation about, you know, the, the ghostwriting and um, the, the really kind of that the research has always been there. You know, glyphosate to us needs to stop being referred to by the pesticide industry as a tool. You know, we know better now. Um, there's, there's no reason now, you know, once you know, you know. Um, so we should never from this moment on, be using a pesticide that's linked to being carcinogenic for purely cosmetic reasons. You know, we're past that. We're past pilots even. You know, we're, we're in a place where we have these alternatives, we've trialed them, and they're finally fiscally sound, you know, in the past year that, that you know, we're able to make that case. Yeah. And just to jump on, I think the, the paradigm that we're running up against and how, what we need to shift for everyone, especially talking about the simplicity of this, uh, process in this call is that it is doable and the paradigm shift we need to have is that it's not difficult and it's not really, really um, costly, even though there may be some some shifts and changes that you need to make. Um, Dr. Zach, could you chime in on just in your work in working with farmers out actually in the fields and what some of the results that you're seeing? Is this, uh, is this healing of our land and our soil and um, using these alternatives, is this a viable solution and sustainable for cities? Absolutely, yeah. The, the excitement that I have, whether it be in clinic or in the field with a farmer, is really around uh, the speed at which biology heals itself. I'm fascinated that you can take a patient who has been in an increasingly toxic environment in their body for the last 20, 30 years, and in that they've accumulated an amazing amount of unrepaired injury, which manifests in chronic disorder, chronic inflammation, chronic disease, 
um, and vulnerability to acute diseases as we've seen with the recent pandemic. And so I'm fascinated that that multi-decade injury can, can transform itself into a, a regenerative biology within the patient within just a, a few months time. So you take 30 years of damage and you can start to show reversal in just a few months. And that, that kind of logarithmic speed of recovery is speaking to something that is, you know, I think I can only capture in the word grace, like built into the fabric of nature, built into the fabric of our bodies and our farms and our fields around us is the, is the physics and biology of healing and regeneration. And it's visible on these farms within a single season. And so if you will just stop spraying and stop plowing for one you know, summer, fall cycle, that next spring elicits the most extraordinary explosion of biology on that piece of land that they've seen in generations. They will see more earthworms, they'll see more diversity of seeds that were thought to be extinct that will come up from the seed bank to create more biodiversity in those cover crops and, and around the farm than they've ever seen. And interestingly, all the weeds that they had been spraying for for the last 30 years are gone because of the, the intense resilience and vitality of, the, of this, the food within those soils or those plants growing within the, the soils. The biodiversity is literally creating a resilience and a, a resistance to disease in the form of invasive weeds or pests in the form of insects. And so the plants are literally becoming more resilient. A single shovelful of dirt proves it within that single year you can suddenly stick that shovelful all the way in. In a typical conventional farm, there's so much compaction of that dead top dirt that you can't even stick a shovel in it anymore. And so it's a pick effort to, to get a, a foot by 12 inch by 12 inch hole dug, which is how we measure earthworm you know, populations. The following year, you, you dig with a simple shovel out that single square cubic foot of, of soil, and it's just thriving with earthworms of multiple species that are aerating and nutrifying the soils at this dense level. And so this is the kind of magic that we see happening in farms and in the clinic is that nature knows how to heal and she knows how to heal at an extreme rate. And without that promise, without that, that proof in the pudding, if you will, I probably wouldn't bother this, this journey because, you know, as we started the, the, the whole discussion, the stakes seem to be so high. The injuries seem to be so extraordinary. We haven't even seen the extent of the damage we've just caused and we are on track for this great extinction event of humanity we're losing a species every 20 minutes around the planet now to this extinction event and yet i am so confident that despite the speed of that collapse we can heal even faster the ramifications are extraordinary can you imagine a planet where there is no no disruption of you know constant plowing up of the mycelial beds and we allow the mycelium to heal the earth and then the microbial diversity comes back to welcome in a flora and fauna that has never been seen before. And this is the most intriguing thing about planet Earth. Again, in her grace, every time there's been a great extinction event, five in history, when she comes back, it's always with more biodiversity and more intelligence in that nature than it ever existed before. I'm fascinated by that. And it's actually created by the power of the virome. Viruses are the result of stress of biology. We will produce more and more virus as we get stress as an organism whether we be a bacteria or a human, and in our production of the viruses, we're actually not trying to hurt anything. We're not hurting anything. We're actually putting out genetic variations of our potential. And so we're creating adaptation. We're creating an acceleration of healing capacity when viruses are present. We have so vilified these things. We've got you know, completely the wrong public dialogue, completely the wrong 
governmental and regulatory committees dialogue on viruses right now. Obviously, COVID-19 isn't here to kill us. It's here to demonstrate that Mother Earth is under extreme stress. And if we don't come in line with Mother Nature's patterns of biodiversity and adaptation, we're going to die. And in that, you know, death call of, of what we're seeing around the world, I, you know, have not yet seen any nation stand up and say, COVID is giving us a future. COVID has shown us our path to a future, and yet it has. And so uh, I think that everything that you guys are doing right now is fundamentally changing the terrain of biology within your community. You're reducing the stress in Louisville, Colorado today by the measures you're taking. In so doing, there will be less viral production from your humans to, to the animals, to the earthworms, to the bacteria and fungi in the soils throughout the next cycles of life. And what's going to happen is there's going to be more genetic variation due to the viral stress uh, communication that's been out there. That virome sitting there in the environment now can help fuel a new adver diversity, a new capacity for resilience that's never been seen before. So we, you all are literally laying the foundation for a generation of children in the future that will be more resilient, more healthy than we've ever seen before. And so it's exciting that we're not trying to return to some previous normal of 1960. Let's go to some future where we have never seen the potential of human life go before. That's really what you guys are laying the foundation for. And so I just, you know, congratulate each of you for that. Thanks, Dr. Zach. I wanna switch it over to Kim, just on a practical um, note. When someone starts to do this and starts to work with a policy influencer, or a mayor, what I know that you guys have a playbook, um, play by play on what to do. What are some of the the challenges that someone may run up against right away, and how can we e put ease into that process for people? Well, I mean, I think it's just shifting the narrative and focusing on creating the awareness of, again, how simple it can be. You know, um, to date, we've only had three cities really kind of have staff time allocated towards fighting this process. I mean, you know, the biggest hurdles always change. You know, once we've been able to get past that, it's it's been really positive, you know, because it's you know, all the pesticide applicators, when they go get certified, it's constant, you know, um, propaganda from industry that, you know, they only reference pesticides as tools. You know, they follow a playbook very similar to big tobacco back in the day. So it's kind of really working with the landscape contractors and city staff and county staff and just sharing, you know, like letting them ask questions, you know, letting them, you know, experience that these alternatives not only work, but they don't harm the soil. So, you know, I, I hats off to the pesticide industry that has created a system that is chemically dependent. So the non-selectives like glyphosate is a non-selective herbicide. It, it harms the soil. It can have up to 22 years half-life in the soil, you know, and we'll share that research. So what it does is it creates a perfect breeding ground for future weed pressure. So then you're locked into, you know, future use of that herbicide. And then you have this monoculture of turf. I mean, we love turf for baseball fields and parks, um, but they lock you into this weed and feed system where, it's just feeding that, you know, that specific turf. It's not, it's 
purposely disconnecting the soil and how the soil is supposed to communicate and work as a system. You know, it disrupts it. And what we've learned is, you know, it, it's, we're now in a place when you focus on soil health, it naturally chokes out a majority of the weed pressure. And again, that's nothing that companies that are dependent on you purchasing products on a calendar year want you to learn. So, um, and another, a, a big thing that I shared with Zach is that we now have lab work that is showing that decisions that city staff are making are directly impacting our children. So, for example, the city of Orange, um, the pesticides that they allow in city parks, um, two of them are glyphosate and 2,4-D. 2,4-D is sprayed directly on the turf. It's 50% of what makes up Agent Orange is now showing up in the children's systems. So these homes that border the, the city park, you know, as a mom, you need to get the kids outside. You, you know, this again, pre-COVID, you still need to get outside and, and have them play in the grass and, you know, gather sticks and explore and, you know, meet friends and socialize. Um, but what happened was these families, you know, the, age, the children's ages were very similar. They, you know, went to the park, you know, maybe once a day, every other day. All of a sudden, they all started showing developmental delays. So this, you know, this mom took her child to the pediatrician and, and she was just so frustrated because, you know, she and her husband were doing everything they could, feeding, you know, Lily organic food and um, just making the best choices as a parent to protect her child. And all of these things weren't adding up, you know, based on their history. So the, the pediatrician ordered lab work. They had lab work done on Lily, age four at the time. And it came back that she was literally off the charts in speed zone in her system. And she was at the 95th percentile of glyphosate in her system, which we can share. So what this does, and, and we pulled the pesticide use report from the city, and it directly correlated with the pesticides used and when they were applied to when the lab was taken. So it's showing that, you know, I think we can show that there is a smoking gun, that decisions made, you know, once the applicator leaves, the pesticides, you know, are invisible, but their impacts are not, you know, and they're in our children's systems. And of course, the lab work is not covered by insurance yet. Um, I think it should just be part of an annual checkup, you know, I mean, it, it's so powerful, because it, it just, it lets us know what we can do, you know, I won't have it done for my boys, because I literally try to do everything I can to prevent any exposure of these pesticides. Um, and, and it's scary to know what's in their system and how to detox them. But I think this lab work is a game changer because it, it, from a liability standpoint, municipalities should be working to get in front of this. Um, and just also just the, the future of where we are with COVID. You know, this is one of many pandemics if we don't take drastic measures to shift how we're currently allowing what's happening. And, and with everybody home, we've been slammed with people because they're home now and they see an applicator outside spraying something on their lawn when normally they'd be at the office. They come home more, you know, they come home from work and they see their lands, you know, their front yard, backyard, perfectly manicured. But now they're there and witnessing what's being applied. They're seeing the granular weed and feed, which ends up in our waterways, and they're asking all these questions. So I think this is a tipping point, and all we have to do is just work together 
Not everybody has an amazing mayor like Louisville, but you know, it's, it's such a positive platform. And we've had elected officials with not the best environmental record kind of really embrace this because it's so positive. You know, it's a win-win from a fiscal standpoint and just an overall health and well-being standpoint. So the, the goal is just to empower everybody and make it as simple as possible. And we have someone from our team just to, you know, help the process. And just before I uh, go back to Mayor for a moment, Marilyn and Adam in the Q&A section, they want to know um, how can they get information about like example policies and then also um, what organic product alternatives. Do you guys have resources for that? And are they easily accessible? Yes. So we have um, all of And also I think one point to share is that any city, county, school district we've worked with to transition to organic regenerative management has never gone back. And it's now over 80 plus. We have to, you know, um, take count. Uh, but it's because it works. It's fiscally sound and it, it's just a, a positive move. So we have, with city staff, we have training specifically for land managers and we give them policy examples, requests for bids. We work to make sure that the distributors actually providing contractor pricing and not special three times the amount of what it would actually be pricing. Um, and then we also work with landscapers who are going to answer a bid from municipality kind of to help them understand what that means because they still have to make profit margins and they have to be successful. So we're just trying to make sure the whole model benefits from moving in this fashion. And then back to Mayor Stolzman, um, since you guys, like I said earlier, were are kind of in the heat of this process, um, what do you foresee um, being, like, how, how, how has it been so far with having the resources you do have? And then what would you extend, or what would you be willing to extend as far as information to other, other policy influencers or, or to un instill these uh, policies in their yeah. own community? So far, it's gone really well. I would say the biggest hurdle is trying to do it in the middle of, of COVID um, with budget changes. Um, there's just a lot of uncertainty um, going forward, but there you, you can't not do it now. I mean, it, we have to do it now. It's like, I don't remember which panelist said, but once you know something and once you you know need to make change, you need to make change. So there's no better time than now to do it. Um, the getting the staff members the training from Kim's group from non-toxic neighborhoods really great because there is a lot of uncertainty it's like well what if we try this and it doesn't work and then we'll get yelled at and people will be mad and so having the training and having the support there is is really important and and what I would suggest for other folks wanting to do this it, you know you've probably heard this a million times but it's so important and it's really important right now and, and that's that everybody needs to vote and everybody needs to talk to the people that they're electing. Um, you know, I, I was watching the comments in the comment section and some of the questions that I couldn't keep up to type fast enough. But, you know, if you just send an email out to some of these candidates, they will tell you yes or no on if they would be willing to do this. And, and then you can spread the word. Um, and and it, it's just really important to ask people what they plan to do and if they'll listen to you when they're elected and then be sure to vote and spread the word among your friends. Voting is so important. Um, and that's the most critical thing you can do. Once people are elected, then it's just really important to give them feedback. And as an elected official, I'll tell you, when we receive feedback from the community, it's really hard to tell people that you work for that they're wrong. 
And so, you know, there's always going to be disagreement and there'll be some people that think, you know, um, you make mistakes, but by and large in our community, people want us to do this because it's the right thing to do for the kids and for ourselves and for the earth. Um, so just make sure that you are communicating to your elected officials because they want to do things for the community and they want to, to answer and, and make it a good, healthy place to live. So um, just make sure you are reaching out and please, please, please everyone vote this fall and always. Sure. So we got lucky because you were very accessible. What would you say to a citizen? What would be a first step to try to get in touch with their mayor if they just can't call them and say, hey, can Actually, we Actually, can I, can I point one thing out? Sure. Having the mayor do this is amazing. And you have like the superstar mayor of mayors. Um, but what we've seen is that working with city staff first is a great first step because if you don't have the Parks and Rec Department or Public Works Department behind you and you work with them and share it, if it's coming from the top down, it doesn't always go as beautifully as it did for Louisville. You know, um, working with Nathan, it was, was so simple. Um, so, you know, engaging city staff is, is critical because the elected officials, um, again, it's, it's top down. So trying to work with your, with your city staff and city staff actually have the authority to revise the landscaping policy without even having to agendize the item for a vote at city council where you'll get the lobbyist pressure. So, um, you know, you guys were a perfect scenario, but we've seen that starting with the elected officials, especially the mayor and then going down, um, can go sideways, it eventually becomes positive, but city staff will always tell you that it's critical to, you know, have that conversation and start that dialogue with them first. Gotcha. I want to ask, there's a, we're getting close to here to the end, and I wanted to ask Dr. Zach a question from the Q&A. Uh, if, if you have not heard of Dr. Zach and his work, I, I would highly recommend, and then in the show notes when we post this, there will be all the resources that you need um, to get to his work. But this question was, what resources do you personally enjoy referring the average American to, to when they don't believe pesticides, herbicides are impacting our economy or that natural systems work? And what's the most important simple research or litigation you would refer to to tell people about this? That field of information is now massive in scope, and so it's very difficult to uh, just refer somebody to a single spot at this stage. Um, for example, uh, just recently with Moms Across America and our team at, at uh, Seraphic Group and Biomic Sciences, we uh, put together a, a team of physician scientists and concerned uh, citizens and uh, testified to the EPA with their open hearing, with their reapproval uh, that ultimately happened with glyphosate. And so there was 13 days of testimony from the public. We gave an hour and a half of testimony, presented 96 studies um, from the basic science literature, both showing at, at the cellular level as well as the clinical level, the impact of glyphosate and Roundup on everything from fetal tissue to you know the mouse studies all the way to public health impact at the, at the population level. And so very dynamic and complete, robust effort there. And uh, ultimately, uh, they stood up at the end, the, the head of the, the EPA, and stated that none of the material that we would 
have presented would be able to be used towards any kind of legislative decision making because it had been pre presented scientifically instead of a, in re regulatory format. And uh, we were surprised because they had told us nothing about the format. And we said, well, that's simple. What is the format we should use? And they said, well, we don't actually publish a format or tell you how to do it, it but it would have to be put into to a, a, a form that's not like this. And so they are so, so many barriers to, you know, the, the success of this at the federal level and the, despite the vast amount of information. So I think ultimately, you know, rather than saying, here's all of the science, here's the nice six studies you should go use. Certainly those studies can be referenced in non-toxic neighborhoods on the, on the toolkit that Kim and, and team have put together. Um, our team at Farmers Footprint uh, worked with Kim over the last year to kind of clean up the user experience through that journey. And I think it really works well right now to, to go there and, and get all of that data that you need to, to get this into the hands of regulators. But in the end, I want to encourage all of you that the science isn't actually that wins, wins the day. It's as dense as the science is and everything else. At the end of the day, it's as simple as showing, as non-toxic neighborhoods process does, these chemicals are in the soils and in the, in the fields of the schoolyards, in the playgrounds, in the golf courses, and we'll show you the same chemicals in the blood of your children. That's really what wins the day. Like, you can talk until you're blue in the face, and you start studies and you're blue in your face, but obviously we're uh, up against companies with billions of dollars at their disposal to bring out, you know, present a bunch of science that, that doesn't portray the dangers that we face. And in a nutshell, the way they get away with this is that the EPA and the USDA do not force people when in giving a, uh, seeking regulatory approval for a product, they don't demand the safety study to be done on the finished product. You can actually just do it over the, uh, the safety of the active ingredient. Our laboratory is about to publish in the next few weeks, uh, well, probably end up being the next few months, but white paper could come out sooner that uh, we have demonstrated now in intestinal cells, kidney cells, that glyphosate as an active ingredient is 100,000 times less poisonous than Roundup. Roundup, which is, of course, the finished product, taking glyphosate, wrapping it in a bunch of surfactants and chemicals that allow that water-soluble chemical to get into cells of plants and humans faster, that Roundup chemical is 100,000 times more toxic, which means that at levels of two, point, two parts per billion, which is typically what you see in drinking water in the cleanest state, you can see drinking water certainly in the 10 to 12 parts per billion of, of glyphosate. If you add the ingredients that are typical of 2,4-D and Roundup and all these other herbicides and pesticides where they're putting stuff around the active ingredients to accelerate their, their entry and poisoning of the cells, you can now see toxicity at that 2.2 parts per billion where with glyphosate alone, you're, you're up at like 20 to 200 parts per million. So this 100,000 times increase in toxicity is what they're not forced to show to the EPA. And so this is our new attack effort is to demonstrate we are not getting our regulatory community to really understand and respect the poison nature of the finished products that are being put on the market because the regulatory uh, agencies don't require that full finished product testing to be done. Um, so, and unfortunately, I don't have like the answer to your, your question is, oh, just go to this website and you'll see everything you, you need. I think the best distilled version of it currently is in the, in the playbook uh, for non-toxic neighborhoods. Get a good sense of what's there. As you dive deeper, if you want more science, certainly I've put, you know, tens of thousands of hours of content online 
with, you know, uh, demonstrating the impact in autism and other conditions. Autism One is a great organization that I've been speaking this literature to for almost six years now. And so you can go to YouTube and type in Autism One Zach Bush and a bunch of my lectures will be there with the peer-reviewed science backing up the damage to to our population as a whole. Uh, a lot of my cancer research is out there uh, and the rest. So uh, my website tries to be a clearinghouse for that information as well, ZachBushMD.com, uh, getting at that deeper stuff. In regards to the regenerative capacity of everything, then certainly um, you know, books like Charles Massey's book from uh, Australia, his book is beautifully written. It's as much poetry as it is an expose on the power of regenerative natures. When you stop spraying chemicals, that book is called uh, the, the Call of the Reed Warbler, which is a bird uh, that really helped Charles reconnect the spiritual connection to his land. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum here in the United States, uh, 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 we've got uh, Gabe Brown with his recent book uh, of soil. So uh, these guys all have, you know, stories of how the regenerative process works. Um, but in the end, I think, you know, the toolkit's done a good job with Kim's efforts to really curate down uh, to the most basic level what you're needing right now to, to get this process started in your communities. And we are, with that, we are almost at the hour here. Thank you, Dr. Zach, for the answer. I know it's a tough one to um, answer because, yeah, there's just so much information. But uh, what I have learned specifically a lot from, yeah, going to nontoxicneighborhoods.org, um, today's goal was to really simplify just what we did as people that were concerned in our community and, and where we see our kid, um, our future kids playing and where our clients are going out and running in the open spaces and, and such. So it really is about follow through. If you have take one thing away from this, it's to take one action step from this. Uh, do any of our panelists have any uh, parting words or uh, a simple, easy action step that you'd like to share? Yes, three three steps. Um, I also want to welcome Non-Toxic New Zealand, which just lost, launched last weekend. Australia, I shared with Zach and his beautiful wife, Jen, that, um, you know, we, we really can't even keep up with the demand out there. And the steps that we take here in the States are the same steps that we take, you know, around the globe is, you know, first request the pesticide usage report then we kind of know what's being utilized and what alternatives to share. The second is to request a meeting with city staff. We don't go to the fancy mayor unless we're stonewalled by city staff. Um, and then the third is we have chapters now around the globe where we'll have people jump on the Zoom to help supply with meeting materials and alternatives and just kind of get that process and dialogue going just so, you know, organic and regenerative management is the norm and not the exception. Gotcha. Anybody else, Mayor? Any last parting words? Just, as I said before, it's really important to participate in your local government, and so the easiest way to do that is to vote. Thank you. Well, we're at the end of the hour. There are a ton of, there are a lot of different questions that we didn't get to, and I will actually stay on here if they don't kick me off here. Um, Jesse, don't kick me off to answer as many as, as I can and Dr. Andrea can. Dr. Andrea, any last parting words as a citizen and healthcare practitioner? 
Yeah, I think just piggybacking off of what Kim said about going to the mayor, for me, it was like a ready shoot aim. I really didn't know what I didn't know. I mean, I hadn't even spoken to Kim yet. And then I reached out to her. And so um, luckily for us, it worked out really great. Um, but I just really encourage you to take the action step to follow the processes that non-toxic neighborhoods has set out so beautifully. Um, we really can do this everywhere. And so just thank you so much for being on today with us here. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Um, one of the themes of the Life Life podcast is to heal, grow, and find your flow into a life that has meaning. So I hope that this information was helpful with you guys today. And uh, we'll catch you in the future. There we grow again, Life Alive Tribe. I'm so grateful you stopped by to reawaken your hope, purpose, and passion about this one life we have to live. It's that time for the Life Alive Sound Off. No matter where you are right now, it's time to pick your chin up, roll your shoulders back, and say, I choose to live a life totally alive.